Has the country moved from a period of deep political dysfunction to something bordering on authoritarianism with the rise of Donald Trump? Does the rise of Bernie Sanders on the left mean Democrats are moving to the extremes like Republicans? What would a Hillary Clinton presidency with a Republican House look like? On episode 12 of the ELB podcast, we talk to Tom Mann and Norm Ornstein, authors of It's Even Worse Than It Looks, How the American Constitutional System Collided with the New Politics of Extremism. So stay tuned for our next episode. Welcome to the ELB podcast. This is Rick Hassan of UC Irvine School of Law and the Election Law Blog. Joining me today are the two co-deans of American politics, Norm Ornstein, who is the resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, and Tom Mann, who is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a permanent resident scholar at UC Berkeley's Institute for Governmental Studies. They are the author of the 2012 book, It's Even Worse Than It Looks, How How the American Constitutional System Collided with the New Politics of Extremism, which is just out in a new edition with the subtitle, It's Even Worse Than It Was. I I wanna start, uh, Tom and uh, Norm, uh, talking about the victory lap that you two have been taking. Uh, A few years ago, when the book came out, uh, it, it was, ignored by kind of the mainstream press. It was seen as being uh, too one-sided. And now it seems that people are saying that uh, you two were prescient. And so I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about what this experience has been like over the last uh, few months with the rise of Trumpism and people coming around to your position. Well, I've been... uh out in Berkeley, and it's been a wonderful place uh, to both observe and, in a more modest way, participate in uh, this new world. Norm and I uh, certainly were gratified when the book was first published by the the response it received more broadly. It, It really went viral. We sold a lot of copies. It created a stir, but but we found many people really discomfited by by what we were saying. Uh, in particular, uh, I think it was true among many academics who find it very awkward to to present arguments that uh, seem to place uh, problems of dysfunctional politics uh, primarily on one political party. It's especially difficult because academics are known to be liberal and democratic, and uh, and it just fits too easily into a stereotype of partisan bias. With journalists, uh, the convention is always to avoid charges of bias by engaging in uh, he said, she said kind of false equivalents. But we made the argument that... Uh, that that was doing much more harm than good, that it was preventing a public from understanding what was going on in our politics. But it it uh, it took uh, a few more years and and some uh, astounding developments in the in the presidential uh, campaign to uh, 
to have them return to the arguments that we made four years ago. And I must say, Norm has been in the middle of that uh, in Washington. So uh, what I found interesting, Rick, is that uh, when the book first uh, emerged, and especially with the uh, piece that we did in the Outlook section of the Washington Post uh, right as it was published, that our editor uh, at Outlook, uh, Carlos Lozada, brilliantly titled, Let's Just Say It, The Republicans Are the Problem. And that went dramatically viral. We got a lot of pushback uh, from Republicans in office. Uh, it was a message that uh, they didn't want to see out there or pursued uh, a theme from <coughs> a lot of outsiders, uh, bloggers like Jennifer Rubin on the right, uh, and uh, people at the National Review who said this is outrageous and ridiculous. Both parties are the same. If anything, that's the Democrats who are more extreme. And, of course, what was striking was the radio silence from the uh, important television talk shows. You know, Meet the Press, Face the Nation, uh, This Week, all have panels. They're all our shows now. And the panels are supposed to discuss what the buzz is around Washington. And when that article appeared, uh, that was the topic of discussion, and there was nothing from them. There was an embarrassment uh, from, I think, so much of the mainstream media at the idea that uh, you would move away from saying they're both the same, they're all the same. And it has changed. Uh, it's fairly obvious now that when we call the Republican Party an insurgent outlier, uh, dismissive of facts and evidence, uh, contemptuous uh, of uh, science and uh, the opposition, uh, that that's now uh, been brought into vivid uh, uh, perspective and relief. Um, we're still getting ignored by a lot of the press corps, but we're finding that a whole lot of people, especially since the Trump phenomena really is almost built into what we have written uh, over the last five years or more, uh, now beginning to come around to uh, where we've been for quite some time. Yeah, I want to talk specifically about Donald Trump. In, in some ways, he's quite extreme, say, with his, uh, with his rhetoric, especially, and, and how he conducts himself as a candidate. But on matters of policy, it might be that he's less extreme than, say, Ted Cruz or uh, the kind of the Tea Party, which forms a, a big part of your discussion of of Republican extremism. So what do you think explains his appeal on uh, through the Republican primaries? Is this about authoritarianism? Is it an anti-Obama wave? And uh, may maybe start with you, Norm, and then uh, Tom can come in. Sure. Um, and, you know, I wrote a piece uh, in The Atlantic uh, back in January, uh, which I called The Eight Causes of Trumpism, uh, and which suggests there's a lot here, including some historical grounding. There is a you know a, a bit of a, a an anomaly uh, or a contradiction at least um, in the sense that we've written about a Republican Party that has moved to an ideological extreme. It has become a radical conservative party in many respects. But you're spot on in saying that Trump doesn't fit that particular phenomenon. What he does fit is the ingrained populism that has emerged in a big way on the left and the right. Uh, in the aftermath of uh, the economic collapse, uh, the financial crisis, and the bailout, and I think fits another part uh, of uh, the appeal 
that exists among Republican voters that flows from the fact that a lot of Republican leaders, we wrote uh, five years ago about the young guns, the new generation of conservative leaders, Eric Cantor, Paul Ryan, Kevin McCarthy, who did a book of the same name in 2009 and then went out actively recruiting candidates and trying to uh, basically incite the anger of the Tea Party populace out there with the promise that they would bring Obama to his knees, repeal Obamacare and Dodd-Frank and blow up government as we know it. And those promises were not kept. They weren't kept in 2011 or 12 or 13 or 14 or 15. A lot of Republicans are frustrated and believe that their leaders have not just lied to them, but are weak need. And when a strong man like Trump comes along and says, I'm not going to take crap from anybody, including my own party's leaders, and we see that even now with his uh, in-your-face dissing of Paul Ryan, the young gun who's now speaker, that has appeal in some instances that may transcend some of those ideology, uh, ideological elements. Yeah, I th- We made the argument... Uh uh, four years ago uh, of how the Republican Party had become radicalized and certainly ideological uh, extremism was a part of it, but by no means the only or even dominant uh, part of it because uh, we pointed at least equal attention to a, a whole number of other dimensions that had more to do with with the democratic process, uh, with lawmaking, uh, with uh, respect for uh, facts and evidence and science, and uh, for a willingness to abide by the norms uh, that really keep a democratic society together. one of the most important being acceptance of the legitimacy of one's political opposition. Um, Republicans really ushered in a, a period not just of of uh, vehement anti-government uh, sentiment, but really welcomed the most extreme arguments about adversaries being enemies, uh, of not being real Americans, of, uh, of the Constitution being egregiously violated, of, uh, uh, of, of threats to our personal well-being from other uh, people uh, with uh, who identify with the other party, and uh, and in particular uh, uh, Barack Obama after after his election. So the 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 real threat to the system comes not from ideological uh, differences, but it it comes from the sort of the certainty of one's views, the the unwillingness to consider. Uh, the other side of a reasonable bargaining partner and uh, the the, the demonization of of, uh, everybody else uh, in a a way that really provided an opening for Donald Trump, who could, in fact, um, 
reject uh, the effort to, quote, cut entitlement spending, Social Security and Medicare, who could attack trade agreements. Uh, uh, at the same time, uh, he could double down on uh, on matters uh, like opposing uh, any kind of real immigration reform other than uh, building a wall and and uh, engaging in uh, in in really uh, xenophobic uh, talk and uh, uh, and the like. So I I think. The Republicans really opened, uh, uh, if you will, to, to what heretofore had been polite society, the sort of mainstream two-party politics, the, the, what previously uh, was kept uh, on the periphery of extreme uh, right-wing or even left-wing uh, populism, and it, uh, it came to take over the party itself. Let me just add one thing to that, Rick, Um, and that is uh, what Trump did brilliantly and cleverly uh, and what made him skyrocket to a prominent position uh, in a group of 17 candidates was to get to the right of everybody else on that immigration issue. And it's when he said the Mexican rapists are uh, uh, devastating our uh, country and we're going to build the wall and make them pay for it and we're going to deport all the 11 or 12 million who are here, that he really became a a dominant figure. And that is, I think, in part because you have a lot of white working class voters out there unsettled by the economy, uh, dealing with stagnant wages, lost homes or homes that have lost their value, but who also see a country inexorably moving towards a majority-minority status. And Trump, by focusing on making America great again, which means making America more like what it was when they were the dominant forces, uh, has given him some traction that goes uh, over and above whatever apostasies he may commit uh, when it comes to uh, real right-wing ideology. I want to go back to something, Tom was talking about a minute ago, we talked about extremism and populism on the right and left. And Tom, I'm wondering if you could put the the Bernie Sanders phenomenon in uh, some context. And it's not just Sanders ideology, which is, I think, considerably to the left of, of at least where Hillary Clinton started out. Um, but it's also the kind of language that you hear from the Sanders people about Hillary Clinton seems to me to be perhaps uh, more extreme than we've seen on the Democratic side. Do you see it that way? I do. Um, interestingly, Rick, it, in some ways, the the Sanders campaign is, is drawing on the most aggressive of political reformers who, who uh, I think, unfortunately, have embraced corruption as the as the focus of their efforts to change the campaign finance system and other sorts of political reform. They felt perhaps pressed into it because of the Supreme Court's limited uh, 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 interpretation of what is a reasonable basis for uh, limiting uh, the role of money in politics, but they have carried it much further uh, in in ways that demonize uh, 
government and other private sector players uh, in a in a way that uh, that I think has uh, potentially been harmful to the to the Democrats. Uh, we'll see. I mean, I still think the possibility exists for. Uh, and the odds favor the Democrats uh, unifying uh, on this score, but I, but I think the heated uh, uh, rhetoric about corruption has uh, has moved into the mainstream through Bernie Sanders, and and uh, frankly, it's uh, as you have have argued in your own recent book that uh, concerns about inequality, political inequality, are, uh, are, are much more relevant and, and, frankly, much more productive than accusations of everyone uh, in politics being corrupt because they, they uh, benefit from private money in politics. That that damning of a whole class of, uh, of politicians and public figures, uh, I think, hurts what uh, Democrats aspire to as a political party. Norma, I want us to look ahead. So if we do get a Hillary Clinton presidency and a Democratic Senate, but we keep a Republican House, and I think that's, if we were laying odds today, that's yeah. where we'd be. Uh, what do you expect our politics to look like? And I'm thinking in two specific areas. One, in terms of the Supreme Court nomination process, where we might see not only the Scalia seat still open, but other seats opening up pretty soon after a Clinton presidency, but also the budget process and sort of regular order and politics as usual. Sure. Uh, well, let's start with a, a fundamental and stark reality, Rick, which is it's going to be ugly. Um, it's not as if anything that could possibly happen in this election will enable us to turn a corner and move to a, a new and better era. Even if Democrats won the House, um, that would mean they would be winning a lot of uh, seats that are uh, fundamentally red, Republican in nature. And the members elected are going to be well aware that in the midterms coming up, they're in trouble and they're going to be skittish about doing anything significant. Uh, the Democratic Party unity would be difficult for the Senate. Uh, two years after this, uh, there are 24 Democrats up uh, three times as many Republican as Democrats as Republicans. And the likelihood is they might have that two year window. So big things are not going to be accomplished. We had a very interesting phenomenon the other day where Jeff Flake uh, committed a gaffe, which uh, you remember was uh, defined as awkwardly speaking the truth, uh, in which he said that, well, this was never really about just waiting for the election to let the people decide on a Supreme Court nominee. It was all about trying to make sure you could get the most conservative court possible and uh, that if it looked like Hillary Clinton were going to win uh, or if she did win, then uh, the Senate should immediately move to confirm Merrick Garland because he would be more conservative uh, and older than anybody she would nominate. Now, if it doesn't happen that way, if Republicans just can't bring themselves to confirm anybody uh, before or after the election, uh, or if the president, uh, Obama, decides to withdraw the uh, Garland nomination with the Clinton victory and let her pick her own person, uh, who would almost certainly be more liberal and younger, uh, then I think you're going to see Republicans filibuster that nomination 
as long as they can. And Democrats in the Senate might let it go for a while to make them look really bad. Uh, the Republicans look really bad. And then uh, if forced to change the filibuster rule again to make it a simple majority for the Supreme Court. Um, but, you know, the uh, reality, of course, is, as many Democrats and Republicans will say during the course of this election campaign, nothing is more significant in the outcome of a presidential contest at this point than the makeup of the Supreme Court, because there could be three or four vacancies uh, during the course of the next presidential term. Uh, when it comes to the budget, look at where we are now, where you have Republican majorities in both houses. Neither of them can pass a budget. They don't have majorities in their own party to do anything. It looks like they're going to be unable to deal with the appropriations bills as we head towards the fiscal year that uh, uh, ends uh, September 30th, the new one beginning October 1, just uh, five weeks before the uh, election. You have Paul Ryan, the very conservative Speaker of the House, being called a rhino and a traitor, a Republican in name only, because he signed on to the budget deal that John Boehner struck right before he left uh, the speakership that uh, raised the spending caps a little bit so they could have just enough ability to pass those spending bills. And the right wing of the party is rebelling against that. The idea that we're going to have a better opportunity in the new presidency, I think, is um, uh, not even unlikely. It is almost impossible. And then the only question becomes whether in the first couple of months of the new presidential term, a few things could be done. Maybe finally some adjustment, technical and otherwise, in the Affordable Care Act, maybe an infrastructure package, and maybe have that tied to some modest tax reform. But big things, they're not going to happen. Budget resolution, no way. Uh, a Supreme Court nominations handled the way we used to with some semblance of the regular order, not at all likely. That's uh, uh, too depressing to end on that note. So let me ask one more set of questions, and, and I'll start with Tom on this. Uh, at the end of your book, uh, the, um, as it came out in 2012, you propose a number of changes to try to deal with what you've called asymmetrical polarization, such as more open primaries, redistricting reform, campaign finance reform. And in a review I wrote of your book uh, at, in uh, Slate in 2012, I said I didn't think this would be sufficient, that actually if we wanted to solve this problem, we'd need to move to something like a parliamentary democracy with, with more accountability, something that's obviously not on the table in the, in the near term. Um, how do your proposed solutions look now? And do you think that post-Trump there might be some kind of market correction on the Republican side so that we don't need any reform, that, that the process will reform itself? Uh, we discussed this in the new edition and acknowledged that at the time we wrote the sort of second half of the book that is solutions to the problems, uh, we weren't particularly optimistic about, uh, about changes being adopted because nowadays political reform is, is viewed entirely in terms of the likely partisan, immediate partisan impact of any of that, uh, any such proposal, and and the parties fought at least as uh, vehemently uh, against one another's proposals when it comes to procedural reforms as uh, anything else. 
And in fact, in the very last chapter of, uh, of that book, we, we argued it uh, in, the, in the shorter term, it's really going to take a, a, a change in the Republican Party and a series of changes in the broader environment to, uh, to improve anything, and certainly clearer signals from the electorate uh, uh, would would be the most uh, important among them. Um, uh, I think we we still feel the same way about this. And one of the you know one of the hopes of uh, making lemonade out of uh, the lemons of this uh, of this election season is. Uh, uh, is really a very strong reaction against uh, the way politics has been uh, been conducted and uh, uh, and beginning to nurture some uh, some changes within the Republican Party. We're not real optimistic about that, but the potential still exists for for something substantial enough uh, uh, to produce uh, uh, some straight-ticket voting that would uh, upset the seemingly semi-permanent majority uh, in the House of Representatives. But uh, the real worry now, frankly, is, uh, uh, is, uh, is Trump and what he represents uh, as... Uh, you know, these are the kind of authoritarian leaders that emerge in other pseudo democracies. That uh, and you and you come to realize, small d democracy uh, is not incompatible with uh, with illiberalism when it comes to freedom and rights and and uh, procedural uh, guarantees of for representation and lawmaking. So. I think I think many in the country are are genuinely frightened about uh, the prospects, um, uh, and and perhaps uh, perhaps it will have a happy ending that that uh, Trump will be consigned to history and will move on to our normal uh, dysfunctional politics. But right now we're teetering on something more serious than we wrote about in, in our book four years ago. Well, Norm, I'll end with you. And, uh, you know, the, the idea that, that Tom is looking back nostalgically at mere dysfunction <laughs> is, is, is pretty dire. And I'm wondering if you share his views uh, uh, as to you know, wh where we're going to be a year from now or a few years from now. Oh, of course I don't, uh, Rick. I'm much more pessimistic. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, um, uh, I think it is a very worrisome time. Um, I would add, uh, you know, you can flirt with a parliamentary system. We have to keep in mind that the parliamentary systems uh, that are our models out there have performed worse than we have and are under strain themselves. Uh, and that underscores a reality that this is less a structural problem and more a cultural one. Uh, we're going to have to change some structures to improve culture. And maybe you're right. Maybe uh, this election will be a jolt to the culture. It could be that Trump will coarsen it even more than it has been coarsened uh, with his uh, thuggish approach um, uh, to uh, uh, discourse. 
and we'll get a little bit of a rebellion against that and return to a slightly uh, higher level of civility. But, you know, partly what concerns me is when I look at the next generation uh, moving up in politics and in the country as a whole, uh, you look at the Republican farm team in the state legislatures, and they're wackier than the current uh, generation of members of Congress. And it seems that our political system, unless and until we can change at least the money system uh, in ways that you have suggested in your wonderful book uh, and that we would endorse, uh, you know, we're uh, providing incentives for ideologues and charlatans to run for office and not for problem solvers. Uh, and that's particularly true on the Republican side. And at the same time, we have a generation of millennials who are coming of age during a time when government looks awful and isn't working very well and convincing them that government can do some good things and is a necessity in the society is going to be a difficult task. Uh, and that may open things up uh, at a subsequent point to another demagogue. So we've got some work cut out for us. And I would say if I could do any kind of a structural change now in the institutions, I would lean towards something more radical in Congress, not moving towards a parliamentary system, but giving us some version of the German system where we could move away from a house of representatives that is growing more and more unrepresentative with more homogeneous districts. It's not simply gerrymandering. It's those residential patterns. And having maybe 100 members of the House elected at large um, would help at least a little bit to ameliorate that problem. And we're not going to do these kinds of dramatic changes right now, so we just have to hope that you're right, that there'll be a natural corrective. Well, you did use the word hope, so this is probably a good time to end this before it gets yeah. <laughs> more depressing. Uh, Tom Mann, Norm Ornstein, I always learn so much from you. Thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. What a pleasure. Thanks, Rick. The ELB podcast is supported by the University of California at Irvine School of Law, but I am solely responsible for its content. The technical producer of the ELB podcast is Jared Hassenklein. The theme music is the composition Jazz by the band Beat FN, used under Creative Commons license. Join us next time for the ELB podcast. I'm Rick Hassan. Goodbye. <laughs>